Hello and welcome to A Moon State of Crypto Brainstorm, where we come together once a week to discuss the latest trends and analysis in the crypto world. All opinions expressed by A Moon staff or guests of the podcast are solely their own opinions. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment advice. This podcast is powered by Blockworks Group, the only events and podcast production company I trust. For access to the premier digital asset conferences and in-depth podcast content, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. Welcome to this episode of A Moon's State of Crypto podcast. Like other technologies such as Tor and BitTorrent, Bitcoin has always had the potential as a technology which subverts existing norms, laws, and institutions, for better or for worse. Our guest for this week, Maya Zahavi, coined the term dissident tech as a catch-all phrase for such technologies. And today we'll be trying to get a better understanding over what exactly dissident tech is and what its recent growth tells us about the state of our industry and how it intersects with political narratives. From the Amun team, we have Hansen and Lenra, as well as myself, Haney, and I'll be your host today. Lenra, why don't you kick us off? Thank you, Haney. One thing I've really seen come up, up and up again, especially on Twitter uh, in regards to crypto, has been this idea, as Hansen, has Hani said, of dissident tech. And there's pretty much no one better in the space to talk about the concept of dissident tech, which we'll define a bit clearer in a few minutes than Maya Zahavi. Uh, I, I consider Maya probably one of the most interesting people in, in the industry, uh, has a lot of interesting and out there views, and which often you know, aren't necessarily always in line with the mainstream opinions that people within the industry tend to hold. Uh, and I think this will be a really interesting discussion. So Maya, I think it'll be really cool if you could explain a bit about your background, your career background, then maybe your political background as well, and then explain how you got into working in crypto and thinking about crypto before we then go on to define what dissident tech is. Sure. So first of all, thanks for having me. Um, thanks for the kind words. I think the best place to start my back, like explaining my background for this particular conversation is to actually say what my first professional experience was. And as an Israeli, I spent uh, three years from the age of 18 to 21 as a signal analyst in the IDF uh, intelligence. And this is the late 90s. And I think that's really where a lot of one... Uh, Maybe most of my entrepreneurial skills were, were first, um, I was first exposed to that and technological background, but also I've noticed, especially in recent years, how much of my, of the way of my, uh, my thinking and analysis has essentially evolved from that experience. Um, and it's kind of funny looking back almost 20 years and talking about dissident tech when in fact I started my career doing the exact opposite in some ways. Um, and so I spent three years as an analyst, did an undergrad in finance and started my first role in the uh, professional life as, um, uh, a project leader in a bank leading a national implementation for, uh, core systems, uh, specifically, uh, regarding pension reforms in Israel. Um, and then I did some, uh, private equity analysis, got my MBA, um, at Warden, and at the time, it was 2008, I thought I was the luckiest uh, financial geek in the world because I got a friend seat uh, to the greatest minds in finance uh, that could explain to me what the fuck went wrong in the system. And the biggest takeaway from that time was that no one really knew, wanted to explain, or wanted to research. Um, and I had gone into these studies thinking I was going to... Um, I really wanted to specialize in the, the, the junction point between uh, media and technology. And Facebook was just rising. And I started realizing that more and more information. And uh, I don't know if you know MBA students, what do you put on Facebook? What do you raise? What do you put on LinkedIn? How do you market yourself? So, many, so much of the decision processes were about how we were interacting with, with these uh, social media networks. And I had gone out to Facebook uh, campus twice that year. And when I came back, I spoke to one of my professors that was uh, teaching 
what they were calling gamification at the time. That was a really hot topic. And I freaked out about Facebook. That was like that breaking point from, you know, from the establishment that I had in 2009, uh, both from the, the financial mindset in terms of the, the financial sector's mindset, uh, specifically about securitization and risk, um, and then about uh, social media and, and just this, uh, what I call the, the biggest giveaway of the commons, uh, which is our data. Uh, I first learned about Bitcoin in 2010 in New York, and I went to this meetup in NYU, and my, my biggest takeaway was that I was the only girl there, and a bunch of people were talking about uh, how they're going to take down the federal government, and I freaked out and thought that I might end up uh, indicted just, for, just by sharing oxygen with some of the people there. Was this a blockchain um, event, or was it just a general, let's take down the federal government event? It was a Bitcoin event in 2010 in New York. That's a little bit better. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, just wanted to check. I couldn't think, like, I, it just wasn't interesting to me at the time. And then I moved back to Israel and I took a meeting with a guy, an ex banker that wanted to start an exchange. This is in 2013. And I looked at him like he was absolutely insane. I was like, Bitcoin? Why do you care about Bitcoin? Um, and he started to explain to me all the different protocols and what people are building. And suddenly it kind of clicked. Like, what was funny was, it became interesting. And the minute it became interesting, it became fascinating. And I think I'm not the only person who kind of, you know, went down that rabbit hole really, really fast. And I locked myself up in my apartment for a couple of days. And I read every single um, white paper that was out there at the time, which during that period, that's that was still something feasible, obviously. Now it's it, it's probably impossible. Do you remember what specifically got you... Um over the over the edge in um, in convincing you, like what specifically did this banker say? What was the inflection point where where everything snapped in place? It wasn't what he said. It was he was talking at the time about um, Mastercoin and Counterparty, and this thinking about Ethereum that Vitalik was uh, starting to formulate into what became the ICO within less than a year, no, two years. The thought that. You can have both programmable money and you can reach consensus about that was fascinating to me. That it's not just this coin that is used to circumvent governments, but it's something that you can maybe edit and everyone can agree about it. And for me, uh, remember that I really feel like I was traumatized by the financial crisis no, because I had done a lot of financial modeling for, um, for securitization uh, right before I went, to, uh, right before it happened. And understanding where the risks were and how this technology can accommodate that just, you know, kind of clicked. And the other side that that was really obvious to me from the get-go is that identity is core to that. Um, and I remember he sent me to talk to a few people. And the first person I actually sat down and had a, like this list of questions that I was trying to grill was uh, Gideon Greenspan, uh, who I ended up working for about a year later. Um, and he was one of the people that was working at the time at, on color coins. Uh, and he was trying to put in invoices in the op returns of Bitcoin so that something of real value and the metadata attached can be built on top of Bitcoin. And that for me was like, oh, wow, you can have actual documentations. You can, and, and everyone can agree to that. And by doing so, I was less concerned with the traceability and more concerned with the fact that you can audit it. And so people have more of a sense for the real-time risk and how to price different assets. Um, but, at, but at the same time, what was really, really obvious um, uh, from the get-go was, the, was the, the risk of pseudonymity. Because it sounds like a really big word. And I think people think, oh, well, it's just a public address and no one can really trace it. And so forth. And um, even then, I remember sitting with uh, Johnny Levin from, um, at the time, he was an anti-analysis, and seeing how he could run all these different algos and be able to kind of um, identify a certain entity from the Bitcoin blockchain, right? And it was a lot easier because there were less addresses at the time um, and so forth. But the risk of that was also obvious. So it was like these two 
octagonal um, concepts that worked within Bitcoin. And you could see that this is going to become a very powerful tool. Thank you for that. I, I found it especially interesting just going to, I, maybe this is quite common for people that worked, you know, around the financial crisis and then came to Bitcoin afterwards, how often the thing that most stood out to them as why they liked Bitcoin was the ability to perhaps better, you know, quantify or handle risks in ways which wasn't possible, which weren't possible in, you know, traditional finance, at least around 2008. And I think going on from that, so you've obviously explained how you got into Bitcoin and crypto, but then anyone that's familiar with some of your thoughts on Twitter and some of the posts you've done will have seen you talked a lot about dissident technology. And it'll be really cool if you could first define what dissident tech or dissident technology is, and then explain why, in your opinion, you believe this has become you know, a tangible thing, a tangible concept as of late. So... The definition of dissident tech I, that I, I was thinking about this for a long time, and every definition I could come up with actually seemed to also encapsulate criminals and any criminal or anti you know or anti government activity um, because that's what it is basically. Dissident are people who refuse to um, adhere to whoever the sovereign is. And they're looking for a tech outlet that would allow them to do so digitally. And if this is about expression or free speech or just transacting with people outside of the, the national sovereign's um, ability to restrict that interaction, right? Um, but I think this is something that what really constitutes dissident tech is something that we're going to be debating for a long time because of where we are geopolitically and also like from the technologically the technological evolution that we're undergoing as a society. And what do I mean by that? If we had just spent the last 20 years building this huge, uh, what Shana Zuboff coined uh, surveillance capitalism, we are now seeing that the technological tools that enable that kind of capitalistic system um, to exist are being harnessed by authoritarian regimes that even if they have been using a lot of these technologies for several years now, it, they're turning it against their own citizens in recent years. And you can say that this is a trend that really started from the Arab Spring um, in Cairo, where uh, the first technological tool that made the Arab Spring possible and a lot of journalists very, very happy with their headlines was uh, Facebook, right? Uh, because the Arab Spring basically started from a guy who worked at Google. They used Facebook to organize. And we also, I, I think those of us who are familiar with these tools, it was also very obvious that that same exact tool is also going to be turned against them, i.e. Facebook. But I think it took a while before people realized that Facebook was evil. I remember, so the, um, oh, no, I agree. Right? And, and because that year that you're talking about, people loved Facebook so much in Egypt that I, I, I think there were nine total people born that year that are named Facebook. And, and, but that's how much people loved Facebook and thought that it was going to bring them freedom. So I, I, and, and then it seems like just a couple years later, everyone suddenly wakes up and goes, oh, this is just an immense amount of power. It depends on whose hands it's in. I totally agree with you. I remember, I remember sitting here and like with a bunch of friends and discussing how the hell are people like uh, congratulating Facebook for this? Because, fa because it was for those people familiar with what kind of data suckage Facebook was doing even back then. Um, I think it was like obvious. And yeah, I'm, I kind of skipped five years there. But it, it was obvious that that same tool that enabled the protesters was also going to take them out of the political scene. Um, and it wasn't that obvious to the general public. But then again, it also, I think, emphasizes that, um, that difference between the commons and kind of like um, um, the decision makers, if you will, right? The elite. Where there is... I didn't want to use that word. <laughs> <laughs> why didn't you want to use that word? That's, that's, that's interesting, actually. I'd be really curious to hear why not. Why don't I like to use the word elite? 
Because I don't think that a lot of times the decision makers are the elite. I think there's a latency, especially as it concerns technology, into um, how aware they are. So like if we go back to 2008, 2009, I, I had a very interesting meeting. I came home for Christmas and I was telling people, look how I use Facebook and LinkedIn now, right? You, you can actually build a fake persona, what we now call synthetics and establish credibility online without necessarily having anything tangible to stand behind it. And people were very dismissive, people that you would call the elite. They were very dismissive of Facebook and of LinkedIn um, and said, well, well, that's just what you use Facebook just to play games and LinkedIn just to um, connect to professional contacts that you don't have their email. And I think there is this latency when new technological platforms come out until people realize their, their full potential and their utility. And both things are not necessarily, they don't overlap, right? And elites are usually tend to underrate those kinds of things and overrate um, the, the tools that they think um, help them reach their goals, say, right? Say offensive cyber. And I, th- I think on that note, especially the point you made about part of the reason why distant tech has become a tangible thing now as perhaps being a reaction to the surveillance capitalism of the Facebooks and all these other digital monopolies. I guess maybe at this point, it'll be helpful to, you know, better understand, at least in your opinion, what kind of needs do you see distant tech kind of properly fulfilling? And I guess this is also quite interesting because there are several, it's quite multifaceted. So on one side, it's obvious that some of these technologies, criminals use Tor, for example, and criminals benefit from, from using Tor. But then also people living in autocratic states benefit from using Tor. And it's possible to demarcate between these two needs and say that, oh, in one case it's valid and in another case it's not valid. And that'd be interesting for you to talk about. And then also we have in the middle, especially we see in the West, when you look at alternative social media platforms like Gab, for example, a growing number of people who aren't even trying to do anything, especially on the edge of legality, but rather feel quite disenfranchised by the current mainstream financial systems or social networks available to them and then have decided to pivot to these more dissident tech platforms. So it'd be interesting to hear from you kind of who, what, what needs are, is dissident tech really fulfilling nowadays and how can we separate these into discrete buckets? So I think we're just at this capitulation point in terms of how big the, the digital economy really is, that at some point, more and more of the GDP that um, of each economy is, touch, is being touched or overlapping with the digital economy. If it's just about identity or uh, communications or metadata and the minute people are trying to um, protest, even if nonviolently, the, the fact that they're connected digitally, the fact that we have facial recognition in so many cities means that they are targeted and can and there's retaliation against them, which brings the need for people to coordinate across um, across regions and do so anonymously in order to protect themselves in the future. So it can't be something that is used against them. And this has been happening, I think, probably it's, it's, re- it's reached a, um, um, a tipping point over the past year, but really this has been a, a very slow process um, where you have protests in, in countries that are clearly authoritarian um, be it in the Middle East or in uh, regions in India or like Kashmir or China, or even just uh, in Europe when people um, just want to avoid being on the record protesting, say, Catalonia. Um, and for me, the, the moment that it just became clear that we need something much more safer is trying to envision what a 21-year-old student in Hong Kong has to think about before they hit the road, the, the streets and protests, right? Because technology has, has made it that even that 21-year-old student 
who goes downstairs, um, go walks all the way to the subway station, pays for his ride, goes to the protest, and you know, texts his friends to make sh- to to make sure where they are, and uses another app to avoid the police. Has been on the record in so many different times, if only his metadata, so that the police can can knock on his door the minute he he gets back home and arrest him for be- being at the protest, right? And um, that is one trend that's happened um, and been much more visible over the past year. The other one is, and I think you you mentioned this, uh, uh, Hansen, before, is the uprise against Facebook. Because a, a lot of the things that Cambridge Analytica and the snowball effect that it's uncovered about Facebook hasn't been a secret. What's been secret is the um, the amount of of, of retribution and critique and maybe even backlash and, and personal backlash at that. And I, let's be honest, I'm as guilty of that as anyone against the, the management that have enabled the system to go so far down in terms of, of, of violating what people like me consider basic human rights. And that's the right to be private. Um, and if we started this conversation just talking about when I spoke about my first professional experience as a second analyst, it always went back to the metadata. How do you track people? How do you trace them? How do you decide if they're interesting? Um, if they're interesting, what else can be interesting about them? What other association so, um, associations do they have? How do you find a uh, um, the deal flow for some dual purpose uh, equipment that could be part of a non-conventional weapon? Um, deal. How do you know if it's fishy? Maybe it's for agriculture. And that kind of thinking started becoming something that two um, very polar opposite, really, uh, subset of people have been thinking about. One is the protesters in Hong Kong. And second, it's the regulators and um, the social platforms. Because in one hand, we, we're still living under nation states. But on the other hand, we're living digitally on global platforms, the big tech, right? Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google. And it's not very clear how they govern us. So if you're protesting against your own government and all your digital life is reliant on Google or an Apple, you want to make sure that they're not cooperating with uh, your government. Right, they're not the tattletale in this story, but you also have to be very uh, cognitive of how much metadata and um, is linkable back to you as a person or your family, so that you don't endanger anyone else. Um, so those two trends, I think, just came to a boiling point over the past year. And uh, during the Hong Kong protests, I was. I kept on thinking, like, what would you need if you're if you're a protester? What would I need? What kind of P two P system for messaging? How do I publish uh, articles if I'm blocked off of Medium? How do I get money? How do I pay for the subway? Um, how do I make sure that they can't trace it back? Right. And after thinking about that, you go to London and you realize, oh my god, I am a complete like open book for anyone looking at the London um, train station, right? Train system. They can see everything. They have facial recognition. They know exactly um, if I got off at Banks or at Moorgate. Um, they know with what credit card I paid for my Oyster, Oyster card. They know um, who I met and who I texted. And that kind of, I think, changed for me a lot of the, the framework of how I think about um, blockchain and blockchain tech and what it should, um, what, what the needs are. Uh, looping back to your original question. Um, and I, I think we need to define those needs much more precisely for users who really need that. Um, and to be honest, in, when I first got into uh, Bitcoin blockchain, uh, the uncensorable aspect was the least uh, alluring to me, right? Because I kind of thought, hey, I'm a law-abiding citizen. I haven't done anything illegal. There's always going to be a government that's going to stop something. But when you think about protesters, you realize that they have much more specific needs than just uh, a means of value that they don't pay tax on. 
They need to know how they can um, have private group chats. They need to know how they can publish. Where can they store their data? How can they connect to the internet when the government shuts down the internet, i.e. mesh networks? Um, how do they communicate? How do they create location-based apps? And how do they make sure they can uh, download apps even if uh, the Apple Store or the Google Play or the um, someone decides to censor them? So something that, I'm, that I'm, I've always wondered about um, with respect to this, and I'm really curious to hear your, your thoughts on it, is what... Is this a story of, is it a story of encryption? Is it a story, advancements in encryption? Is it a story of just a new economic models? We've been thinking about this for a very, very, very long time, right? And yes, I agree with you, the, the, the cameras, not just in the subway in London, but all over the city, um, a bit distressing. But surveillance and the the thought that privacy is a fundamental right that should be protected um, has been has been a thing for a while. And we briefly touched on this earlier, but even the dangers from Facebook and other social networks being both centralized and um, controlled by corporations, I think people have been thinking about this for a while. After all, the crypto and blockchain has its early roots in the 90s. Um, you mentioned 2010. I think the, do you remember the Diaspora project where we were going to come up with a new um, decentralized social network? I think yeah. it's still going. It just has not amassed that many users. Um, Dalton Caldwell with app.net at some point had issues. So if Diaspora was anti-Facebook, app.net and Dalton Caldwell seemed to be anti-Twitter. And even today, I think which one was it? The, the EOS Foundation uh, with, uh, with the social network that is supposed to rival Twitter. So it's, it seems that there have been so many attempts at this. And from an awareness point of view, excluding protesters and um, text messaging on, on, on Signal, being able to have Tor, et cetera, forget about that. Just from a privacy point of view, because I think protesters um, and technologies for protesters are absolutely important. But it's a smaller subset of the population, right, than all of us across the world, developing and developed countries, um, that have severe issues with, with guaranteeing our privacy today. So is it new today? Has, are, we, are we ripe for a change um, or has it not happened yet? And if it has, sort of what changed, what's new? Okay, so that was a very loaded question. Um, one, I think nothing has changed yet. I think there is a very... Um, there's a, a really Cambria explosion happening right now in terms of cryptographic um, advancement and innovation, but none of it is tested. And that's obviously a building block for whatever application we, um, we're going to be building in the future for privacy or for um, a more a new economic system, if not that. It's not only about privacy, right? Privacy is a feature, but privacy has to be built in to the design and thought through first. So there are two things that are happening simultaneously. One is really the dissidents, but second is this understanding that big tech and a lot of the social networks might be owned by corporations, but at this point in time, they're more of a public good, where we as the commons have absolutely no right. And what I consider one of the most superficial arguments is like, okay, pay me for my data. Um, and I'm not so sure that is something that's going to resolve any of these issues. On the other hand, saying, hey, we want to be, um, we need to decide what our digital, I call it the digital bill of rights are, like what are our basic human rights and needs from these uh, platforms? What kind of governance and accountability should we demand from, from Facebook or from Google or from Visa for that matter, right? Um, and what can they sell? And what is also, and, and the third part of this is, what's the, I don't want to say original sin, but what are the things we can't combat, right? Like uh, location, um, location data leakages from our phones. They're always going to be leaked. Uh, and you see that a lot of the connecting all the different building blocks together is being done um, as a technological or a product need for dissidents. But on the other hand, and this is going back to blockchains, 
I think if we consider blockchains a new economic model in terms of allocation and rights and uh, voting participation and governance and so forth, then I can easily see the leap from that to saying, you know what, let's look at blockchains as um, a medium or a conduit between different platforms or silos where we can restore the rights of individuals to export their data or verify that Twitter isn't, um, um, doesn't have a bot network that is doxing someone right now as we speak, or that um, if uh, Facebook decides to cancel someone, they can not only see all the data that Facebook collected on them, they can export that data and maybe um, import it into competing services. So it doesn't have to be an either or with blockchain, Either you're, you're using Facebook or Twitter, but it can also be, hey, you know what? I want to take my account from Twitter to Twitch or to Gab or to something like that. And by doing so, you're also enabling um, people that are being forced out or deplatformed or canceled uh, to have an outlet where they can interconnect to the world and do so privately without any retaliation against them. Now, um, are we close to that? No. But in order to do that, we need to start thinking about what kind of blockchain networks will enable that to do. And I think one of the, um, one of the initiative I'm actually the most excited about is the Blue Sky Initiative out of Twitter, right? Where they're kind of saying, hey, you know what? We're going to use Bitcoin for different things to kind of think, think through um, where do we fit? And by doing so, they're, they're essentially moving the social networks or the application side up the stack, right? So now Twitter can be a curator and a gatekeeper and do so to protect their own community while other people um, on Twitter don't necessarily have to be solely reliant on Twitter's infrastructure in order, in order to interact with that, right? So we might be um, unavoidably actually uh, headed to a more aggregated um, network across platforms instead of one competing social network. So um, you you say you ask you know if uh, the long answer to are we there yet was no right you just you just said that what do you think are the factors that are missing is it the economic models where Facebook and Twitter clearly make a lot of money off of using our data for many purposes, including advertisements. Or is it more structural, you think, with respect to um, more privacy-centric architecture or different structural designs and how these blockchains have been built? So I think it's much more structural and it's much more even constitutional, right? Because when you think about a social contract between each of us in our states, we kind of have this agreement that says, I'm going to pay taxes and I'm going to have, by doing so, I have a right for um, whatever social net is in that country. And I'm willing to adhere to your laws so you protect me. And if you think back, for example, um, the, the U.S. Post, Postal Service has a right to open your letters, right? They have uh, the right to record all the letters and who receives what but they don't have the right to do that to our emails. And yet they're, they're taking the, the governments are taking back. Um, they're taking more power to intervene or look into our life and basically cut us off. And you see that in China, I think with the Wuhan virus, but you also see how much of the metadata that, of, and the trails of data that we leave behind become uh, a tool for them to track us. Um, and that means that we need to come out and think what it is that, um, as citizens, we want the, the, the state to protect us, even from itself, right? Um, habeas corpus is one of the biggest foundations of democracy, which means we do process, basically. You can't uh, see someone's property without a subpoena. Um, and yet the government, uh, because of the digital economy, they're saying we can seize a lot more of your property and your data and your communications regardless. Why? Because, hey, we have a backdoor here and we can uh, query Google 
about what kind of emails you have and so forth. And we need a much more fundamental rethink of what is uh, the digital sphere within our society, right? What kind of uh, information does any provider or can any provider basically share with some with a third party? We need to rethink how accountable the government is and how other third-party service providers are accountable to the government and to us um, insofar as who they share our data with and how does that data get aggregated. Because I think a lot of the dangers is actually in um, aggregating metadata around one single identifier of an individual, right? What we call PII or personal information identifier. So I'm, I'm, there's a lot of uh, efforts going on in the Valley, in different governments to rethink this. But I, I've noticed a trend that what the governments say privacy and what we think about privacy are very, um, very different concepts a lot of times. Oh, 100%. I agree with you. And, and you brought up uh, China before. I think a conversation about distant tech cannot be missing uh, China as one of the main topics. And, you know, I go to China a lot. Uh, my parents are Chinese. And the narrative here in all of the Western world really is like that China's government is really, really, uh, you know, bad in the sense that they, they do just take whatever data they want. They censor whatever they don't want to have. Um, a quick anecdote there, there was a flood in China. And for some reason, the government didn't want the rest of China to know about the flood that was happening in this one region. So they really just prohibited everyone talking about it. And people who used talked about it on WeChat, which is our WhatsApp in China, um, you know, who talked about it on WeChat in their little private groups about a flood, which really is nothing political, uh, nothing threatening to the government, and definitely nothing threatening to, uh, you know, the common people. Um, they actually removed uh, the, the groups. They deleted the groups that talked about it. I know that because some friends told me. But yeah, anyways, narrative outside of China is, you know... Wow, that's mind-blowing. Right? A flood. It's so unimportant. But yeah, that's just an example. And everyone in the Western world, um, you know, frowns upon that very much, especially on the social rating system as well. But what I have to say is, you know, when I go to China and I speak to my, my family and, and, and friends and stuff, they are actually not so much against it. Their argument is... Like we said before, which is the most common argument that we hear on the street, if I'm a law-abiding citizen, I don't do anything wrong. Um, why should I, why should I, you know, care? I'm so unimportant. No one cares about me. Let them look at my stuff. It's irrelevant. And I personally don't like this argument at all. Um, but I'm having difficulties often to find a counter argument to that. You know, they say, let them watch us. And in exchange, we guaranteed, you know, it's more safe here. Uh, less crime, less less murder, less assaults, which is a great you know social benefit, and the, they they consider giving up a bit of privacy in exchange for that um, is a decent price to pay. And I'm I'm wondering if you guys have a good argument that I could tell them. I mean, usually, I just tell them something like you know, privacy is a right that we have, and you know, giving that up. Um, It might be hard to get back at a later stage. I think that's what Snowden says. But other than this, I'm not sure um, how to convince them. So I think I've heard this argument by you don't have to be Chinese or living under the uh, the people's the Communist People's Party to think that. I think that just no one's interesting until they are. Um, so, so you would, if you were speaking to Chinese people who say, hey, you know, we are happy to give up a bit of privacy for more social security. Um, is that in case you one day need that, um, you might not have it? So that was the point I was trying to make earlier. I think we all give away some parts of privacy for, for security reasons, right? That's part of the social contract every single citizen has with their, with their nation, with their government, whether or not the government delivers, whether or not, and how much freedom we're giving up is what, um, is basically the range of different governments in between the far left and the far right. Um, but I think that's not a valid argument. Um, and part of it is, uh, let's be honest, is part of it is because all I have, you know, my grandparents were immigrants. They fled Europe. 
So every time we talk about privacy, I always think about that. If you're a refugee, if you have to pretend to be something you're not, if you need to pay for things in order to run away for safety, how do you do that? Um, and I think a lot of people who didn't grow up in the West probably uh, have a hard time understanding how much freedom matters. And freedom is really, let's be honest, it's overvalued until it's gone. Um, and I've, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm showing my age, but I've had, I grew up right um, in the 90s in Israel when a lot of people from, from the Soviet Union came to Israel. And it was really mind-blowing because like Chinese, um, they've actually didn't consider the lack of privacy such an awful sacrifice until suddenly you do have that freedom again, right? And it's just, uh, so just speaking to some of these kids at, that are now adults and their reflections on that, I think it really is like a, um, a state of mind that's very different. Um, but you also have to understand that if we compare what, what China is, and I think it's, it's, it's an unfair comparison, to be honest, between China and what Russia used to be, you can see that the Russians, even if they were safe, uh, or the Soviets really, they strive for freedom no matter what. And what's really interesting is you don't have that in China. And the reason for that, I think, is that is, is twofold. Number one is that the U.S. was the pinnacle of innovation and uh, the future society in the 80s when, it, when comparing that to the Soviet Union. But today, when we compare China to the U.S. or to the West, China has surpassed us, right? I mean, it's it's impressive what they've built in the last 20 years. Um, and I have to believe that if you design and, and build a, a tools for a society that allows the outliers, right? The people that get punished by the social credit systems, the people that don't follow the rules, um, they are the people that will bring the innovations and the new way of thinking, right? If Because a lot of censorship and uh, adherence to, social, to um, the social norms is basically punishing people for not conforming. And progress doesn't come from conformity. It comes from the weird, the mutation, uh, uh, the insane. The people who go out on a on a wing, on nothing, and tell people to go fuck themselves. And if you can't tell people to go fuck themselves, then a lot of different progress is going to be uh, stifled. Yeah, I, I think that point is especially interesting, especially talking about, at least in your mind, the importance of, I guess you can see tech in general as having this property, but especially distant tech as providing tools for the outliers and then that being a necessary, necessary condition for innovation. I think probably the final topic we should talk about today is regulation. And I think this is interesting on a number of fronts. Uh, the first of which is that, so a lot of this discourse today about dissident tech has been split into two halves. So one and one half dissident tech in some way is a reaction to this trend of surveillance capitalism uh, we've seen since the turn of this millennia, more or less. And on the second hand, it's a reaction to the all-encroaching desire of many governments to surveil their people. Uh, and I guess most people, most people within the tech industry naturally would think that the best way to solve these problems would be through new tools. So blockchains or ways to protect people's data or the like, or ways to ensure private conversations via apps like Signal. Uh, and this is quite, you know, this is the dominant narrative within our industry, I would say. And then on the other side, especially if you look at people uh, within antitrust, in antitrust circles, especially a lot of the stuff that's come out of the Open Market Institute as of late, they would argue that the biggest driver to fix these issues, especially around surveillance capitalism, and even to a less extent, uh, the encro encroaching arms of the government would be just better policy. So antitrust policy to break up monopolies and limit their ability to share data across platforms, which inevitably leads to more surveillance or 
better versions of GDPR, a lot of the stuff that's come out of California, for example. And these are two different trends. And in some way, they kind of could negatively affect each other because, you know, really advanced forms of distant tech may make it harder for regulators to enact regulations, which they may think would help citizens as a whole. So it's quite interesting, Maya, if you could share your thoughts on what role will regulation play in tackling some of the issues that uh, dissident tech ostensibly is trying to solve? And do you feel that they're at odds with each other to some extent? Sure. Um, So first of all, I'm a big fan of the Open Market Institute. I think what they've uh, put out is really um, important to furthering the discussion or the the discourse. Um, I especially agree with the notion that... I remember I put this up on Twitter about three years ago, and I got trolled for even suggesting this. Um, that maybe putting data on a blockchain can enable authoritarians. Um, and now I think it's actually what a lot of the regulation that is looking to publish data or especially about people or their transaction on an immutable chain is detrimental to, to our society, right? I mean, can you imagine if um, so many opportunities that people like us or our generation have aren't possible because, um, I don't know, you did something stupid when you were 16 or your genetic information is out there and uh, a blockchain smart contract has uh, gatacad you for, to one niche of society. On the other hand, um, and there's, I think there's an explosion of regulation that is looking to combat all of these issues. Um, and regulation is is one of those things that is amazing as a soundbite. And when you get down and dirty into the weeds of it, um, that's usually where it gets really, really complicated. Um, and I, I don't really know where we're heading. I think that um, if we were talking earlier about a digital bill of, of rights that I mentioned, I think that regulation, going too fast with regulation can actually um, have a negative impact on what we perceive to be um, our rights over data in transactions, especially if um, technological design leads the way and not our needs and desires as a society. So um, I personally think that a lot of the mess that we're in with surveillance society is because in the name of innovation, we've let the big tech companies go unregulated. And part of it is because of lobbyists and the people who actually end up writing regulations in our, usually, which are people with a vested interest. And some of it is because our politicians just aren't as knowledgeable about tech and the nuances. Some are, but most aren't. Um, but regulation in general is a tool, not an enforcement. And it's a tool, most of the regulation that we see outside is principle-based. And as such, basically kind of says, this is the framework of what we're looking to build. Please go adhere to that. And if you mention, honey, um, the GDPR, I think GDPR is is an amazing masterpiece example on how regulation can actually have um, back-ended snowball effects that weren't foreseen because uh, it was written too abstract, too much in the abstract. Yeah? Um, On the other hand, the regulation that is being built right now is... I Look, we're looking at the CBDC in China, right? And you're looking at what came out of Davos. And you can see that beyond the narrative or the headline, what is really being designed is not that different. And that's where I start freaking out and being like, guys, where in the small letters are you um, able to do this and you're not able to do that? Because a lot of time regulation goes out of its way to protect A, the bureaucrats, and B, the the big players in the game, i.e. the corporations, and not us as individuals. So 
if you look both at the CBD, the Chinese CBDC design and uh, the the POC, I think it was the um, the IMF, but I could be confused with ACB here, that they did on uh, CBDC, both didn't have um, anonymity as an opt-in in the design, right? It was an, an anonymous voucher where the government can basically say, um, if you want to be private, you have to pay this and we're capping this. And we're capping the amount of dollars or digital dollars or CBDC that you can transact with privately. So wait, are we okay as a society that there's a cap to how many private transactions we're going to have, both for dollars and messaging? Because these are the kind of um, questions that kind of end up in the middle between regulation and what ends up happening in practice. And so regulation is an amazing tool. Um, mostly, I think, uh, by the way, in antitrust more than privacy. But I definitely agree on that point. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and this is where I think we should be um, actually fighting. This is why I kind of really changed my views on this uh, in the last, ever since Hong, the Hong Kong protests, to be honest. Um, because I think where the business side is, is having new companies grow and compete with incumbents. And we need regulation for that. But And we need regulation to define what, uh, what our rights for privacy are as individuals, Right. But in between the two, if the if uh, if by regulation we're de- we're designing systems, they're gonna fail. They're gonna fail us as citizens, but they're not gonna fail the government, and they're not gonna fail um, the people who maintain those networks. Right? They're gonna make money. The question is, what society do we end up living in? And if it's really really bad, we're gonna need dissident tech. So you know it's. That's why I, I keep I, I in recent in the recent couple of months because of the protests because of China, um, I keep and because of Saudi and Lebanon and all those protests, I keep on coming back to dissident tech as the infrastructure or the backbone of whatever um, what I call cross organizational networks are going to evolve from blockchains. So I, I know that Lanra said this was the last question, but this is such a fascinating topic. <clears throat> Something that came up, especially um, when we were talking a little bit about China, are these efforts at social credit that we're seeing. Um, I'm sure you have an opinion on that, and I I, I would love to hear it, Um, and sort of how it ties um, back to both dissident tech and everything else we've been talking about. Um, Yeah, so again, this always goes back to uh, what I think is like the ultimate how can your data be used against you? Um, when you know when we started this conversation, I was telling you why I was so fascinated about blockchain and it was real time risk. That sounds amazing when you're talking about a synthetic of a of a, a credit derivative swap, right? On um, on an underlying asset that is traded halfway across the world and is actually an ETF and a basket of other assets that are, that are trading somewhere else. When we're talking about real-time risk assessments of individuals, that's health insurance, that's our own credit line, right, for the credit card, our own loans and mortgages, then it starts being something really, really possible. And I think China has... And 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 part of it is genius, right? You have to be like, hands down, this is brilliant. They built a system that is able to not only surveil their their citizens, but enforce um, a mechanism to reward good and bad behavior according to what the government decides is the norm, right? If someone uh, jaywalks... But it's, it's brilliant in a very different way, right? It's brilliant in, you know, reading or watching The Hunger Games or some dystopian fantasy and going, wow, this, this system is really well built and a well-oiled efficient machine. Just to give an anecdote of uh, how this in China, you can't buy train tickets without your passport. So if your social credit system drops below, I don't know the numbers, but drops below a certain uh, threshold, they can block your movement. And obviously, they can block your um, money as well. And then even more obviously, uh, they can block what you say. So, Which is an imprisonment except yeah, outside the prison. Um, no, I, I think I think the blocking and the permission of like you can't get on a train, you can't get on a bus, you can't uh, pay anything. 
that's like extreme. Let's go to the basic. You jaywalk and you get shamed on the billboard and you're already fine before you reach the other side of the curb, of the street. That's insane. I mean, it's, no, it, it really is. But And yes, you're right. It's, it's in the most nefarious way possible. It's still brilliant. Because think of governing a nation that is so big and expansive and yet being able to implement something like that it's scary as hell, but it's a massive undertaking that they've managed to build. Um, I think the social credit system is coming to us, though. It's not something that is nefarious by design. It's also evolutionary. What happens when, um, you know, in the U.S., you have FICO stores, scores, right? What happens if the amount of time you spend on Twitter starts being used against you and there's a penalty on your FICO score because of that? Or... Um, if the amount of places you go to becomes um, a reason to um, raise your pre- your insurance premium, what happens if insurance risk pools don't become become depoolized? Right, they're not they they're not pools anymore. And instead, you have an individual um, health risk score according to everything you do. And um, jumping into the pool in the middle of the snowstorms becomes a penalty that you pay for from day one, like from at the age of 14 becomes something you pay for at the age of 50 with a premium because, Hey, now you, maybe you have just exposed yourself to more cardiac uh, risk. So surveillance economy, the, sorry, the surveillance economy has all this data. It's just not centralized by a government or enforced on us by law. It's enforced on us instead by the corporate leaders, right? Um, I don't know how different that is. If we spend more and more time with gateways and identity verifications by the big tech, how in that sense is that? Is it that different than the Chinese surveillance uh, um, system or the social credit? If the ring access that the police, sorry, if, if the, the footage that the police in Atlanta uses is based on ring uh, videos that they get from Amazon and facial recognition that they outsource from Facebook, then we're back to the same, we're at the same spot, right? In both societies, where even the most capitalistic society has become super centralized. And the communist uh, economy has managed to build the infrastructure in order to fulfill or test their economic philosophy. So it's, it's, it's a very ironic time in that way. I have actually one more question before we wrap up. That's not directly to you, Mike. Actually, it's to any of you. I mean, there is enough dissident, uh, not enough, but there's a lot of dissident tech out already. Like like you mentioned, uh, Lanro, there's a Signal if you want to chat. There's ProtonMail if you want to sec- uh, write secure emails. Tons of VPNs to prevent uh, prevent you, you know, people uh, watching over your internet traffic. Though I have to say both Netflix and China are very good at detecting VPNs. Kudos to them. But why do you think it's not taken up more? Like I have Signal. I have maybe a total of 20 people in my friend list who have Signal. Um, it's working. It's not like a beta or like a pilot. It's a fully working working uh, app. Yet the adoption is so little. Though I feel like you know everyone I meet prefers privacy over non-privacy if there's no extra cost to it. I think I think you, you hit on some of that um, in your question. I think they prefer most people prefer privacy over non-privacy, but I, I think it's still. I, I, this is entirely my personal opinion. I think most people are still um, not fully aware of the complete ramifications of losing privacy in this manner. I think it's one of those things where. Like Maya was saying about freedom earlier, understanding the value of freedom is easiest once you lose it. Um, but while you're living in it, much like privacy, um, I don't think you, you fully uh, see the depths of the problem um, until you're confronted in a situation like it. Um, anecdotal evidence, but Signal has been... Um, getting much, much more popular across the Middle East, um, specifically in some of the countries that have dissidents or protests or autocratic governments, etc. And a huge part of that involved a ton of people um, communicating on less secure networks or communicating in different ways, 
getting arrested or disappearing, right? And I, I think people will not naturally um, use a network that maybe less people have or is less um, uh, known and, and, and maybe has a little bit more friction, just a tiny bit, um, until they really need to. And un unfortunately, I think in some cases, it's sometimes it's too late. Um, but I guess the more optimistic side uh, would say something like the usage is going up and to the right. And hopefully it's a compounding function where some sort of um, network effects start to happen where people tell other people, tell other people and so on and so forth. So what, so hold on. So you're saying there's a, there's a reverse networking effect for some privacy applications as well, right? Well, I'm, I think the biggest point that I'm saying is, is the point you were saying earlier, where the best way of knowing the value of freedom is losing it. Um, and I, I think people aren't using privacy because people don't understand what they're losing until they lose it or until they are in a situation where they know someone that has lost privacy and as a result is in a prison cell somewhere with all their emails and texts being read to them as the crime, etc. True. Yeah, I agree. Um, I'm just thinking I have this one group and we keep on uh, forking to signal and we keep on going back to whatever between other platforms and we try signal so many times as a group and it always fails on UX. Um, so you were asking why privacy is not like um, hasn't made it into the mainstream UX, a lot of UX and convenience. I think flat out signal is not as good as WhatsApp or, or as good as Telegram. And I agree. And it's it's mm -hmm. become so much better. Like I remember using Signal when it very first came out. Um, it's it's light years ahead of where it was, but it's still not as good as you know the the hundreds or thousands of people that are working on these um, Messenger and WhatsApp and um, Telegram and and all of the other um, cool apps. I think that's that's part of it. I heard that um, Brave Browser is now um, a client for Tor. Is that accurate? I saw I saw it mentioned somewhere. Because I, th I also I think remember. Tor is one of those things that's pretty cool technology, but really, really, really difficult to use in most cases. Um, so I, I agree with you, Mike. I think um, we desperately need better um, UI UX for some of these experiences, and then hopefully people that use it will stick with it. Um, because I think we're getting this problem now where a lot of people aren't using it because they don't deem the problem as big until they interact with its ramifications. But then even when some people use it, those that aren't terribly desperate to use it, realize that the UI UX just isn't there. So, no, it's, it's totally that. But I think uh, you were mentioning Tor. So what's interesting is the U.S. government funded a lot of what was dissident tech in the 70s and 80s, when you really think about it, right? Um, they built up uh, both Tor and uh, the Dharma Initiative and all these things in order to promote democracies abroad. Um, and I think Signal is, is kind of that manifestation in our times. But it also kind of – let me just focus on this for a sec, because Signal, I think, is this um, – an amazing example of the difficulties of privacy, right? So um, I think about two weeks ago, Real World Crypto, Signal published uh, this post, or maybe a month ago, about how can they make sure that they can have full private uh, group chats, meaning how do all three of us have a chat together and add another fourth party without people who don't know that party being exposed to his identifier, i.e. his phone number, right? Now, that's a really simple thing to happen if you're on a WhatsApp because you don't care. But if it's on Signal and no one else can know who this number is, it becomes a really, a really, bit, a really hard problem to solve, right? Um, and they use zero knowledge and a bunch of really fancy crypto, but they didn't really resolve the the initial um, challenge, which is to protect that new member of the group from other people fan finding out who he is. Because instead, you have to send private keys to every other individual who is in the group without knowing who he is 
um, um, previously. So that's one of the reasons I think that like it's just so complicated using all these privacy stuff. I mean, just explaining it to your mom sometimes, like private keys, PGP, keep this uh, 16-word um, paraphrase. It's just not intuitive. And it's not convenient when you have other stuff that are just so intuitive. No, ab absolutely. Absolutely. And I, um, how many people are using Signal that aren't using it properly, right? Because we're supposed to have a number between us, right? There's the, the identifier. Um, I forget what the, what the term for it is. And you need to constantly check in case I get a new phone or in case I get hacked, right? Is it the same number that, that's, um, that's between us? I, I completely agree. We are way over our usual 30, 40 minutes. And I think it speaks to the depth and breadth of this topic. Like, I, I think we could go on for another four hours. Um, it's very early. I agree with you. Um, and, and so uh, if anything, I think you'll be back on here, hopefully, um, if, if you let us talk to you again. And we would love to circle back on this and see what the developments are on both regulations, compliance, government affairs. Um, you, you mentioned the thing on the U.S. helping a lot of dissident tech. It's still happening today. There was a Financial Times report on uh, the American government covertly helping keep the internet up in Iran for the protests. Um, but I think the, the, the other points on structural and UI and UX, it's still, it's still early. Um, but hopefully the, as the needs uh, keep elevating, um, so do the solutions. Thank you so much for being on. Great. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. This was it from the Amun team. Thanks for listening. And if you have any questions or would like to see your topic on our next episode, reach out to us on Twitter or LinkedIn. We'll see you next week. Bye.